Hello and welcome to Sport Unlock, the podcast that throughout 2021 has been bringing you all the best of the week sports news, analysing the issues behind the headlines. Coming up, we're going to take a look back on 2021, the winners and losers, the big sports news issues. But of course, we're still here in the holidays, bringing you the latest issues of the week. From me, Rob Harris from the Associated Press and joined as ever by... Tarek Panja from the New York Times and Martin Ziegler from the Times. Hi guys, um, yeah, we, this is uh, we've had a, a year of living not very dangerously on this podcast, or, or some might say quite dangerously in the, in some of the people we have upset. So um, yeah, let, let's here's to 2022 and another another full on year. Another full on year of upsetting people, Zeeks. Well, yeah, absolutely. How often are we proved right, though? Vindicated in our legitimate assessment. So before we look at some of the week's sports news, let's perhaps some of our moments of the year, what have actually entertained us through the year as we've travelled around a bit more again, but still on Zoom sometimes. Yes. Uh, if, I, if I look back on, on, on the year that we've had, all those news stories, but there's been moments that have made us laugh as well, made us smile. And uh, I remember... Um, uh, one of these press conferences on Zoom. We're still, unfortunately, still having to do them. But, but there was one in March with the European Club Association, and it was a very supposed to be a very tense one as well because there was speculation and rumor about a Super League looming, which would only become too real maybe a, a few weeks later. And then the tense debate with UEFA about the Champions League, and obviously. We're doing this stuff over Zoom and it's at the whims of our Wi-Fi. And I guess one of our colleagues has had a bit of trouble over the last year or so in um, in getting his signal to work. And I think, Rob, you might have a bit of audio as to, as to what happened there. As Andre Agnelli, then the ECA uh, chairman, being asked one final question. Yeah, and we can take a listen to that now. Martin, please first. Yes, hello. Martin? You can you hear me? I can't hear you, Martin. Can you not hear me? No. Oh, for... Ah! Try again. Well, Martin? <laughs> Bloody technology. Yeah. Now you're on mute, Martin. Try unmuting yourself. That's it. You're still on mute. You're on mute. You're on mute yourself first. David. Um, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Um, Chairman, if you want to just close with some final remarks. I think we've covered all the issues. Of... This uh, no, I see someone. <laughs> Martin, we hands up. Did you hear it now? Sorry. I'm quite angry. Yeah, that was uh, Martin Lipton, um, our very respected colleague from The Sun, who uh, letting the frustration get a better of him, not perhaps for the first time. And Super League has very much been the theme of the year. It was actually the issue at the top of our very first pod in January, wondering if it would happen. And uh, of course, we were borne out. For me, one of my moments of the year was actually being at St. James's Park in the the first game after the Saudi takeover of Newcastle and that odd sight of Newcastle fans all dressed in their Arab mock clothing and defending the Saudi regime, suddenly the biggest cheerleaders for the country. Yeah, Rob, well, while the Super League at least won't happen for now, I think we're going to see a bit more of that style of dress, perhaps, at St James's Park. Now the spending can begin freely as soon as, as, soon as this month. We're in the new year. We are indeed. I think my... Uh... One of the, the the moments I thought was sort of the, the, in, in the, the most memorable was uh, Arsene Wenger did a, a sort of big briefing around why a, a World Cup every two years um, was a great idea. And on the same day, I went and interviewed the um, UEFA president, Alexander Sheffrin, who, who immediately said that, well, if FIFA do that, then UEFA in South America would boycott it, which I think effectively killed it. But I think that was a... That was a, 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 I wouldn't say an amusing moment, but a, certainly a significant moment. It, it takes the air out of that biennial World Cup balloon pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, more of our memories from the year coming up of an absolutely 
chaotic year, but a year that showed just how hopefully important is the world of sports news and trying to explain some of the craziness and some of these figures that are in their power grabs so often at the top and uh, a bit of Salt Bay on the way as well too. That will be our New Year's resolution to finally do a pod from uh, his restaurant with him and maybe with Gianni Infantino as well and a very uh, high price that will need our crypto sponsor to come in to pay for that one. (laughs) So as we uh, still keep the news agenda flowing between Christmas and New Year, it's been a pretty busy week and an intriguing story out of China, actually, Tarek, that uh, so often we like to see our stories justified and prove right over time and uh, a ban on tattoos for footballers. This is a long time coming. It's been a a semi-unofficial policy reported that in 2019 at the at the Asian Cup I was I was there covering the tournament it was really hot it was in Abu Dhabi and the UAE in general but there was a game there in Abu Dhabi and China were playing really warm day and I, there were these Chinese players wearing very long sleeves I was asking around and they said well it's because they've been told that they can't show their tattoos off you know the Chinese team has had a lot of trouble getting results anyway and that sweltering heat is going to be even tougher I remember Marcello Lippi, the former Italian coach and former Juventus coach and manager at the time. I remember asking about it and saying, is this making your job even harder? You got very upset with me back then uh, in January 2019. And now here we are, the end of 2021. And this is official. Chinese football players cannot get any new tattoos. And those who have them already, and there's quite a few of them, those full sleeves have become kind of a uniform of football more generally. They've been asked to get them removed. And again, this is the whimsical nature of the rules and regulations that have underpinned Chinese football for the last few years. And if anything, 2021 has shown the decline of influence of Chinese football as well. If we were recording a year ago, it would have been about their big aspirations, perhaps, in the world and their investment. But we've seen their investment going down, withdrawing from Inter Milan and Maybe harder to see them hosting the bigger FIFA tournaments anytime soon that they wanted to. Yeah, it's it's been one of the stories actually of the year. Um, gone under the radar largely because of all these other massive tectonic shifts in football. But but at the time when China first emerged, 2015, 2016, it was the destination for everything. Big money sponsors at FIFA, the first one after the scandal. Who was that? It was Wanda from China. Teams across Europe being bought by by Chinese businesses. And then of course there was a Chinese Super League spending huge amounts of money, amounts we've never actually seen in Europe as well, in some of the wages that were being paid. Um, And this year, all of that's kind of disappeared. The big real estate companies uh, that own the teams, they're fallen away. The big spending is gone. And last year's champion, Jiangsu Suning, owned by the electronics company Suning that owns Inter as well, were closed down just two months after winning a title. You couldn't imagine that happening in in one of the big European leagues, but that's what happened in China. I now think everyone's talking about Saudi Arabia as this new destination, but a few years ago, it was China. And 2022 is going to be very much about Qatar, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's um, all building up to the World Cup. That decision that was taken in December 2010, we were all there in Zurich, and it's... Actually, time has whizzed by. We we're just about to to have that, and um, yeah, we uh, talk of Martin Lipton earlier on. I, mean, I remember the, the, the day after the um, the day after that vote was taken, he did a he did a story saying that uh, it was likely to move to the winter, and so it so it happened. Uh, and so yeah, November twenty twenty two, it's going to be there. Martin, it, it's, Rob, it, it's no less weird though. I remember being in that in that hall with you guys in in Zurich when when Sepp Blatter opened the envelope. You know, it's Qatar that moment. You know, we're, we're um, more than ten years on from from then. To me, it doesn't feel any any less weird. The place is smaller than Yorkshire. It it's yes, it's been moved to January, but at the time it was going to be in summer, tiny place, really hot. Are they going to fit everyone? Rob, you wrote about this this week, in fact. You know, we were worried about how somewhere that small can accommodate all the football fans from all over the world safely. And you've written about that this week still. Yeah, after several weeks of actually trying to get some detail out of the Qatar organisers. And this was an issue that generally came up in a conversation 
in a pub with someone looking to go out there next year and we started looking on the websites and everyone was showing us being full every hotel this was in november around the time of one year to go and you could not find a single room so i started asking more questions of the qatar world cup organizers about you know just how many rooms they have and they gave this figure of 130,000 rooms they're going to have for the tournament. And then I started to distill that down a bit more and say, well, how many of these are for regular fans? How many are for sponsors and FIFA officials, teams, and indeed the media? Because they do set aside rooms for the media at these tournaments that we pay for, but they are uh, reserved. And after some probing, they did finally acknowledge that only 90,000 of them would be available to fans and they'll only be able to be booked through an official website and we're not talking about 90,000 hotel rooms here there's only 30,000 hotel rooms it seems in all of Qatar so this is apartments that are part of the process of booking them and it's going to be pretty hard because Qatar is still talking about more than 1 million fans they expect to come from abroad 1.2 million for the World Cup that starts on November the 21st uh, in 2022. So whatever happens, it's going to be pretty hard to accommodate them all. And I did then ask them, well, what was your modelling shown in terms of how many fans might be there at any one point, given this sort of shortage of rooms? And they actually said about a week into the tournament, which would be November 27, 28, they're anticipating 267,000 ticket holders being there around that date. And clearly there isn't enough hotel stock or apartments to be able to accommodate them all. No, and also, if you travel for a World Cup, you tend not to just go for the day. You watch the game in wherever you are in Russia last time or Brazil before that, you, you'll probably stay a bit longer. And I also remember Qatar's pitch as well, saying it was perfectly located for people to come from Europe and Asia as a kind of transport hub. So you might even get more, more than some of those places that were hard to reach. The Again, honestly, the... the there's people who say, well, what do you expect them to do? Build build hotel rooms that aren't going to be used after the tournament. And and it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're forcing this place to build hotel rooms. The reality is this is a completely unsuitable place to host the FIFA World Cup. And that's what we'll keep coming back to, unfortunately. If you take the World Cup somewhere like that, you are going to have a bunch of problems that you wouldn't have elsewhere. And you would have known that before voting, at the time of voting, and after that. And that's where we are now. You keep, you say like it's a, Qatar's a, a, the size of Yorkshire, Tariq, but actually the World Cup is not being played in an area the size of Yorkshire. It's basically being played in a single city. So it's, it's effectively being played in, in in Leeds. So, I mean, I wonder if, if the sort of idea originally was when they did the planning is, oh, loads of people are going to fly in from matches from Dubai. Um, obviously, sort of political differences have made that slightly less easy, haven't they? Although this has been the year that the boycott of Qatar has subsided from the regional rivals, so there is actually travel back between those nations. But it still would require getting to the airport, going through the airport, flying, getting out on the other side, which is several hours flight from Dubai. Now, one thing in Qatar's favour is you could, in theory, leave a game, fly back to Europe, for instance, and be back at your desk by the morning. If, of course, we're not all still working from home by the time we hit next winter. And let's hope there's no new variants around. And that, though, though, doesn't mean fans are spending time in the country. This is meant to be the World Cup opening eyes to the Middle East, spending time there. But it's going to be very hard to spend significant amounts of time. And also, this accommodation website that they're going to be launching, it's first come, first served. So people just pile into it, book all the rooms, and then it leaves very little uh, available. They're not even directly tied to tickets. And something we'd heard a lot about, I would say, in recent years is, well, there's the desert, it's the desert nation. You can camp in Qatar. That's going to be the solution. Now, actually, in a statement, they're saying that actually campsite availability is only a small percentage. And they said, we've always viewed the ability to camp as an offering of traditional Qatari hospitality not a solution to speculation around accommodation shortages. Speculation, which is normally a word for something that's accurate. (laughs) Right. But, you know, a couple of things as well. Yeah, you probably could go for a day and come back. But again, that's very elitist as well. It's going to be so expensive. Imagine trying to justify that. 
you're gonna you're gonna fly somewhere at cost of several thousand dollars, watch the game, fly back, and and you're back. You said you're back at your desk within 24, 48 hours. Normally, these tournaments are an opportunity to to tack on a holiday or to you know it's a trip of a lifetime going going to the World Cup, and that's why it's so special. Now now it's like you know a Mission Impossible style get into the ground and get out, and it just seems really really difficult. The one thing I noticed as well, Rob, um, is as we've covered this stuff, there has been some backlash as well, saying the criticism is is anti-Arab. You know, why, why shouldn't Arab country um, host a World Cup? The thing is, I haven't seen anyone ever say anything um, that is anti-Arab. It is just the the still, frankly, quite ridiculous situation of hosting the World Cup somewhere that tiny. The you mentioned the Gulf blockade uh, and Qatar's dispute with its neighbours. Saudi Arabia, particularly, and the UAE, has, has thawed, and that that is critical, really is. Because imagine if if that situation, without the air travel, and also crucially, potentially, without that overspill for accommodation, if if <laughs> that that doesn't bear thinking about. But but what what it got me thinking about is what Michel Platini, who um, famously and controversially switched his vote to Qatar, was talking about shortly afterwards, was. Way back in 2010, I remember say, him saying, well, look, maybe now we've given it to Qatar. Some of the games can be hosted in the neighbouring countries. I know the Qataris got really annoyed about that when it was mooted again a year or two years ago, the peak of the blockade by Gianni Infantino. But if you think about it, a Gulf World Cup would have made far more sense given the, given the pressure points that we're talking about today. And they did revisit it in 2019, but... It was one of those Gianni Infantino plans that was not grounded in the basis of the ability to deliver it because by that point, there weren't the stadiums available in the other countries necessarily up to standards. And it was one of those examples, something we will hopefully get later in the episode to discuss in depth a bit more about one of his big ideas that doesn't come to fruition because he's not thought it through properly. The, the other point you're talking about, is this something targeted particularly at Qatar as a Mideast nation? We've done these stories about Cardiff and Kiev when they've held the Champions League final, highlighting their lack of accommodation. And actually UEFA have said they're changing procedures in terms of cities that host it based on their ability to fit in the fans. But we'll see how that is borne out in the coming years, given the sort of political pressures that can often be borne in terms of where they take the uh, finals. Uh, something for me, finally, on the Qatar situation in terms of the desert uh, camping, if I was to give them something they can take, I don't know why they just didn't say we're going to have the capacity for several hundred thousand people to camp like Glastonbury fits 200,000 people. Say you've got the capacity for it, assess what the ticket sales are like, and then you just build based on that and you might never need it. I mean, that's well, maybe, maybe they were advised by the uh, people behind the fire mm. festival. Rob. I mean, one thing, <clears throat> one thing that the, the organisers have told the, the um, Mark Roberts, the chief constable is the head of football policing in the UK is that nobody will be allowed in without accommodation already booked beforehand so that's uh, you can't just buy a ticket or have a ticket and turn up yeah good work on that story Rob um, very important to uncover that and there's been some news this week we have about um, some very big losses financial losses by Chelsea which we should talk about I think Chelsea have announced some huge losses, uh, Martin. The uh, Chelsea PLC accounts were published in the UK on Companies House. Eye-watering figure there, 155.9 million loss for the year to the end of June 2021, the year they won the Champions League. And that compares to a profit of 35.7 million the year before. And the thing is that I've, I find kind of disingenuous here is the club is blaming this on on COVID and the fact that matches were being pushed behind closed doors. But if you look a little closer at the numbers that were published, yes, Chelsea did have some revenue loss that you can attribute to, to COVID, which is largely having to play games like other teams behind closed doors. So going from 53 million to down to 7 million, that's a 46 million loss. But all of that was wiped away by an enormous increase in their broadcast revenues. £91 million more, in fact. And the thing is, what this shows, 
to me is that during the pandemic, thanks to having an extremely wealthy owner in the oligarch Roman Abramovich, he decided to spend money again at a moment, if you remember, a very, very busy last couple of years in the transfer market at Chelsea, while many other clubs were struggling to to, to buy players. Chelsea have uh, been amongst the biggest spenders in Europe. And that's really pushed up the amount of money they spent on player transfers, but also on salaries. Their, their salaries have gone up about 50, 60 million in that time as well. So I think what this shows is that some clubs have taken advantage of the pandemic, what that has um, you know, affected others from spending to, to replenish their squads. Chelsea being one of them. This is what these numbers show. Man City being others. You know, the teams that are owned by these wealthy owners, be they states or, or Russian billionaires in the case of Chelsea, they've been looking to strengthen while others are in a position of weakness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Chelsea, whenever they make a big profit, it's basically funded by player sales. Um, and actually, they made a profit on player trading again this year. But but you're right. They their over, their turnover actually went up um, nearly thirty million. Um, basically, winning the Champions League was a massive sort of uh, in terms of broadcast rights. That that was huge. Um, their wage bill now is is it, it's only second only to to Manchester City's in the Premier League in terms of the ones that we already know about. So Manchester United have filed their results. Um, they're down about three hundred twenty five million. Chelsea three thirty. Manchester City sitting at the top, three hundred and fifty-one million. So, I mean, they these 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 figures may change when the, the, the various clubs file for for last season because some of them are, are this year's figures, some of them are the previous year's figures. But it just does show Chelsea absolutely went on a massive splurge where everybody else was cutting back. Mm. And it was no surprise, you know. I think it was a big sign actually. Last year's semi-finalists. We had uh, Chelsea, Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City as three of the final four um, in, in the Champions League. Um, I think that is very significant. It's a sign of where we are today with the game. And further entrenching the uh, the super clubs as well, particularly those who've managed to come unscathed from the fallout from the Super League debacle. Yeah, certainly those that can um, you know rely on... Um, an influx of cash from outside of the um, the normal football revenue streams. In fact, Chelsea's accounts do say that the club's kind of going concern relevance is is bound up with the continued support of of its owner, um, without Roman Abramovich and the parent company Fordstrom. That was one of my oddest moments of the year in November when on a Sunday afternoon I walked into a room at Chelsea and uh, came face to face with him, not even expecting him to be allowed into the country at the moment and suddenly there being a uh, close quarters in a small room when he was actually hosting the uh, the president of Israel for one of the things that he's actually used Chelsea to as a platform to campaign against racism and anti-Semitism. Obviously, it does indeed help in terms of his image, in terms of, uh, you know, trying to create a different perception while well-meaning of the club. Well, he has also been able to go to games again as a reason as well. His travel has been made a lot easier because in the last month he's become Portuguese. He's managed to acquire Portuguese citizenship, granted an EU passport, and we should be seeing a lot more of Roman Abramovich at Stamford Bridge, at games again. It's a venue he, he, he likes. Um, until his issues with the UK government in, in recent years, he was a... Uh, that's one thing you could say for him. He's a regular attendee. He's very into uh, supporting his football team, certainly being present. You know, compare that to, say, Sheikh Mansour of, of Manchester City, who I think has still only attended once. It was a game against Liverpool in September 2008, I think. We haven't seen him again, but he's said to be a really big, big Manchester City fan host pizza parties in his palace, apparently, to, to watch those games. Uh, you know, maybe um, maybe he can acquire a Portuguese passport and come to games as well one day, if that's what it takes. Yeah, Abramovich, yeah. When he, in, in, in back in the day, well, not that long ago, up until about three years ago, he, he, he used to spend about a million pounds a year on um, 
corporate hospitality boxes, uh, and which he stopped doing because that was always put in the Chelsea accounts as a uh, related party transaction. He was actually at the uh, World Cup vote in 2010 as well. He was obviously Russia winning that day and he was sitting at the front of the room and uh, it was a chance for us to actually go up to him. He actually did say something in English, which was pretty rare about being happy, but couldn't extract anything else. Well, Rob, the, the, the most remarkable thing there was uh, Vladimir Putin calling him out. It was, for me, you know, in all the years we've been doing this job, it was that press conference with Putin after, after Russia won. And then when he called Roman out, and he did it in a way that really let you know who's in charge here. When I think the question was, um, Mr. Putin, who's going to pay for this? How are you able to afford this World Cup? And I think he said something like, "In well, you see in Russia, we have many, many rich people. In fact, there's one right there. And he pointed at Roman Abramovich and he said, you're going to build this, that and the other. And... I think all Bramwich could do was have, you know, be seen with that smirk that we, we've kind of, you know, the Mona Lisa smile he has that we've seen, um, you know, time and again. We have not seen many words or interviews with him. And I guess you can't really say no to, to Vladimir Putin. It's unclear how much um, Roman Bramwich have had, have had to, has had to spend on, on Russia in 2018. But I bet it might have cost him a, a few bob. That was probably one of my first real experiences, anonymous Twitter accounts starting to sort of send abuse and sort of slightly threatening messages after I did ask Vladimir Putin in that press conference after Russia's bid victory about how to deal with racism in the country in the years before the tournament. Yeah, it was, st- it was a stunning press conference. It was just weird, well, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, some are incredible moments. And, well, another country that the Olympics is returning to in 2022 is China. That's going to be one of the big talking points next year. And we now know in the last week, there'll be no hockey stars going there. Yeah, this is the um, National Hockey League in the United States, which had said that it would release players for the, for the Olympics. But a spate of COVID cases has decimated their calendar, like the football world and other sports have seen. And the the kind of space they had to allow players to go to China to play in that in the Olympics. I think it was going to be a three-week gap has now disappeared. And the NHL has now rescinded that ability, that offer to to players to, to go there. In a way, the the tournament is going to be a lesser tournament for that from a you know as a spectacle. But it really does help uh, team China because the, the concerns were that China, which was placed in this group with not only the United States hockey team, but also another powerhouse, Canada, and also Germany, which has its some of the best NHL stars as well, um, was going to get absolutely wiped. It's going to get absolutely crushed should it come up against these teams. And so now having the US without NHL players, Canada without NHL players, and, and you know, Germany, shorn of its best players, may, may help... China avoid some humiliation at that tournament. And in American sports too, in the NFL this week, a somber week, the death announced of John Madden, the former Oakland Raiders legendary coach, won the Super Bowl, better known to so many perhaps as a analyst on television and to many, many more, including myself as the name on the front of the box of the NFL video game. Yeah, I think John Madden, perhaps more than... I can't think of any other person who's helped to grow a a sport outside of their their home market, outside the home fans. I, like you, Rob, knew nothing about American football, didn't know any of the star names, but did know the name John Madden because of that game's enormous popularity when, when, you know, during the 90s and early 2000s. I'm sure it's still um, popular now. Well, of course, we have football manager, but maybe this is the year that might have got a lot of interest in boardroom manager, because as we now start to reflect on the year that was, the first year of Sport Unlocked 2, it really was the year that football boardroom politics did come right out into the open. And you saw the real passion of fans as well, particularly the protests in the streets around the Super League. And it was the very first episode of Sport a lot last January after we all received details about the potential for a European Super League being launched 
that the details did emerge and we we started to talk about it and eventually it did come to light in April but there had been hope and belief within UEFA that it wasn't going to come to fruition and uh, you know ultimately UEFA president Alexander Sheffrin was being misled by was it the snakes he called them Andrea Agnelli the Juventus uh, chairman not only that Alexander Sheffrin was so close I thought he was so close to Andrea Agnelli that he accepted the offer of becoming the godfather to Agnelli's youngest daughter. So that sense of betrayal was even stronger when you put it into, into that context. But the thing is that this story, this Super League, yes, they were in, felt like they were a little bit in denial. It had been rumbling on for, for so long. Rob, Martin, I think we were all on, on, we talked about this at the start of the pod, the, this um, press conference in March, just weeks before the the announcement that there would be a Super League, we had Andrea Agnelli, then the chairman of the European Clubs Association, the member of the UEFA Executive Committee, so the top board, denying or at least deflecting any suggestion there was anything to the Super League beyond speculation. Yeah, I mean, I mean even down to... Uh... Two days before the the actual launch of the Super League, I mean, I think that's why UEFA were so sort of um, caught out, and um, Sheffrin himself was so sort of furious about it. it was is you know, there was the UEFA Club Competitions Committee where where Agnelli was sitting on there, and um, Ed Woodward was sitting on, on the Manchester United vice chairman was also on there, and they both voted through the new uh, UEFA Champions League reform proposals only only for two days later to uh, completely pull the rug from underneath UEFA, or at least try to. So let's just remind people of where we were, particularly at the start of January. The reason why this was all on the table is because the post-2024 Champions League reforms were being discussed, what the shape of the competition would look like in 2019, originally a plan had been put forward by Agnelli, backed by Sheffrin and UEFA, it seemed, for 24 out of 32 places to be locked in every year. That only UEFA then backed away from when there was the weight of opposition from the mid-ranking clubs and the leagues in particular about ending this pathway from the leagues into the Champions League and the Europa League, potentially, and you know damaging domestic competitions. UEFA then put forward an alternative proposal, the one you're saying that was being backed by the ECA. And then on that weekend in April, something that we'd been talking about for so many years, constantly threatened, just burst out into the open. They eventually confirmed it close to midnight on the Sunday night. And Florentino Perez then went on uh, Spanish television as the face of this Super League debacle, a website that was scant on information and a absolute case study in a PR disaster. That, that's what will live with me, to be honest, in how catastrophic this launch was. You have some of the most influential people in the world, business people in the world, some of the biggest sports organisations on the planet, launching what was described at the time, if you remember, as a project that was to save European football from collapse. They were blaming the pandemic and all sorts of other things and said, without this Super League, football in Europe will be at risk, may not exist as in the way we know it. So launching it at midnight when Europe was asleep was odd. And it didn't get any better from there. It collapsed over 48 hours. But if you reflect on those 48 hours, there was nothing from anybody except Florentino Perez, you mentioned, who appeared in what appeared to be, and I don't want to, well, I'm just going to say, quite a trashy-looking late-night Spanish television programme. It's a good job we don't show the video <laughs> from us very often. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's still the only one who tried to give this thing any life, speaking in Spanish, which, again, for a global product, which this thing was going to be, you know, the world, the lingua franca is English around the world for, for, for products like this. There's not a single person, not a single spokesperson talk this up before it collapsed. It was, it was pathetic. 
the only takeaway from that Florentino Perez TV interview that of, of note was that he wanted to, football matches to be cut from 90 minutes to 60 minutes, another sort of public relations catastrophe. But just looking back now on the Super League and the collapse and everything that's happened since, where do you think that leaves European football and European club football? I mean, we were generally sort of wondering on the Monday night when we recorded one of our most listened to pods, would this actually really happen? Because we were plunged into this moment where it was still alive. There were the protests growing. And the issue that seems to be significant going forward as we look where European football might go is who can be trusted? Who can the UEFA president trust? Can the ECA be trusted? The leadership even by clubs lower down the pyramid too? Because this is what the whole Super League situation showed. The fact there's so much uh, double dealing going on. Even Boris Johnson and his opposition to the Super League. Well, we discovered that days before it was actually launched, his chief of staff had been meeting with Ed Woodward in Downing Street. And we've still not had the exact details of that. Then let's factor in Gianni Infantino, who for months and months did not deny that he was some way complicit in the Super League. Clubs believe that they had his support. He was potentially going round actually backing this. And however much he tries to make statements saying that a Super League is something he's completely against, well, at the same time, he's backing an African Super League for clubs as well. So what will not change going forward is the highly political nature of all this. And quite frankly, the duplicity that goes along too. And the 2024 Champions League changes are still not completely set in stone, so could be uh, changing. Something that has not changed is the awakening of fan power. And actually, those scenes from the days after the Super League launch, when Chelsea fans took to the streets before their home game, Petr Cech was challenged on the way in. He's now a Chelsea official. And that was the night that it started to really unravel because Chelsea were the first club that we discovered around seven o'clock in the evening were going to signal their intent to leave. Then we discovered the other English clubs and by the end of it, all six had backed out. Some claiming basically that almost they were felt they had to go with it because the others were. And uh, of course, Paris Saint-Germain never went along with it. So Nasser Al-Khalifa, their president, emerged as the new chair of the European Club Association by Munich and other German clubs didn't join up. Atletico Madrid backed out. So did Inter Milan and AC Milan. But we enter 2022, still standing in this Super League proposal. Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus and fighting through the courts not only to um, effectively prevent UEFA launching any renewed disciplinary action, but also to actually perhaps get a verdict that upholds their right to be able to go out alone and launch a breakaway. Where are we now? I think where we're now is not at a much healthier place. If you look at some of the rationale, apart from the completely self-serving nature of some of the owners involved in this, a lot of this was down, I think, to the lack of enforcement of regulations of financial rules in European football. And we talked about Chelsea's accounts earlier in the programme. Owned by a billionaire, able to blow everyone else out of the water. We talked about the three of the four semi-finalists in the Champions League last season, Manchester City, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and, and Chelsea. This is one of the, the, the other reasons. The fact that I think the some of the clubs, again, self-serving, felt that UEFA was unwilling or unable to enforce its own regulations and, and, and football was being pulled away into the stratosphere by um, you know a few teams that are owned by oligarchs and nation states. That's one. The 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 other point um, here is this legal case, and I think some of it has merit, if I'm honest with you, because it calls into question the setup, this football settlement of FIFA at the top, with these confederations having all this power to decide whatever they want to do. I.e., they're a monopoly, and look, there's sometimes monopolies are the least worst option. And you could argue if FIFA and UEFA if UEFA and FIFA acted in, in the way they should, then perhaps that's not the worst thing. But the issue is this that FIFA, UEFA, they are competitors to, to teams and leagues as event organizers. And we've talked about this in this podcast over the year. 
that they're, they're competing with them for TV rights and sponsorships, but they also are able to rule them, punish them for rule breaches. And that is a lot of power that these organisations have, have got. And I think this lawsuit, if it gets to the European Court of Justice and it is opined upon, I think there might be a rude awakening at the end because I think there are some legitimate gripes here based on what's happened historically. It's an interesting one because I think if you if you have a competition and then you and then you you know you set your rules and then you have some people you know want to come people who are part of that competition want to want to still be part of your part of your group but then do something outside that as well then you can then you can you know you, you should say well if you want to go and if you want to break away you can break away fine but you can't do it within our current structures but this issue that the governing bodies have too much power, FIFA and UEFA, is something I think that will be discussed a lot more. The fact is they are so dominant over the sale of the rights, the competitions, running the competitions as well. And the fact is this issue over monopoly, it'll be interesting to see how it does actually uh, get borne out in the courts. Because the fact is, for instance, at FIFA, all the confederation presidents and members of those confederations sit on the FIFA council, yet mm. they sit on the council with their own vested interests from their own continents. They're not sitting as independent, globally thinking figures of the global game. So actually, effectively, you've got Gianni Infantino at the head of FIFA, who is one of those few is actually sitting there as a purely elected global figure. The others carry regional interests. And as we see in Europe, they've got their interests to protect and uphold the dominance of their competitions in particular. You know, things like the Champions League when it's threatened by a, a bigger world, a club World Cup, if that ever does happen. Yeah, he's presiding over a board with, with competitors who sit on the board with him, who, who probably don't want, as we do know, we don't want his... Um, his ideas or his uh, reforms to, to go through. But, you know, Rob, one of the things, Gianni Infantino also, you know, he can't have it all ways or both ways. You know, I noticed in his New Year message he issued from, from high up on um, the hill in Zurich, he said, the new FIFA is a democratic body and together with our stakeholders will design the path for football's future, making the game fit for purpose in the modern era, ensuring that we can boost global competitiveness. But he doesn't talk about making FIFA fit for the modern era. Decision-making is still in the hands of 211 FA presidents. As we noticed and we discussed last week, they're not always paying attention. Um, you know, We had a major summit last week and at least two members had fallen asleep. And if we're talking about the future of football and it needs to be a broad church, not only do you talk to these people, surely they need to have some decision-making input as well. So where does this leave the clubs? We talk about the super clubs, the likes of Barcelona, which has been neutered by its uh, financial problems and La Liga, pairing back its uh, wage cap and also Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City. Are the super clubs still as powerful or has this been the year where we've redefined what is a super club and who are the clubs that actually with the dominance and control of European football? Well, I think, for, uh, I mean, Tarek sort of alluded to this, but a, a combination of the Super League collapse and COVID has left the, 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 the what were the, the sort of super clubs um, looking not so super at all. So, I mean, it's not just Real Madrid and Barcelona, Juventus have all suffered huge financial losses, and um, but the, 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 the influence of the big six... Um, Manchester United and Liverpool particularly, I, I think, has been greatly diminished in English football as a result of this. And the other 14 clubs have really sort of felt that they've drawn a line in the sand and they've been much, much more aggressive towards them since that since that Super League happened. As a prime example of this is the um, the refusal to have five substitutes um, because that... Uh, I mean, that is very much a decision taken by the smaller clubs. They do not want the, the big clubs to, to um, have any particular advantage by having larger squads, for example. And is the Super League dead for now? Are we going to get any sort of attempt at that in 2022, a different style reinvention of the format? Or is it also dependent on what the courts say? I think they've not given up and they already have suggested they've got they got things wrong. These are the 
certainly coming from Spain, um, where, where Madrid and Barca and with, with Juventus on board are still still keen. They've they've redrawn their their plans. They want um, a bigger group, maybe sixty teams. They just want to initially question whether it's correct and it has to be UEFA that runs it. And I think you know let let's see what comes from it. But I think they've made such a hash of what happened before all the goodwill and the the way JP Morgan, for example, was burnt and the backlash it got. I think people are going to think twice about doing something that will cause that much fury on, say, in the streets of the UK. We had fans um, protesting outside. Uh, but but we'll see. Rob, one of, one of the things I'd like to see if we're going to be able to turn the page on um, racism in football. That's That's been another big topic that I think we, we, we saw, sadly, quite a lot of in 2021. And in cricket, a reckoning in England too. We had Azim Rafiq's powerful testimony of racial harassment and bullying starting to bring about changes at his old club Yorkshire that he'd been pushing for for so long and not seen happening and well there has been a clear out of the leadership and the coaching at Yorkshire there are still deeper concerns as we end the year about the handling of the case and the failure to hold anyone to account initially and this would have resonated so widely across the country and minority communities and youngsters looking to go into sport what confidence can aspiring young British Asian cricketers have in their sport. Rafiq's troubling account about the abuse he faced really reflects why we're seeing so few recreational players from British Asian communities going pro and those racism concerns do linger as we end 2021 and for any more background for new listeners or those not following cricket there was a pod in early November where we covered this scandal in depth and back to football as 2021 ends UEFA only recently optimistically declared it could eradicate racism from the game by 2030. And while in 2021 over the Super League, you might have seen the UEFA president Alexander Sheffrin seem as one of the big winners and someone who was on the fan side and a big sort of figure standing up for their rights. Perhaps on discrimination in the game, there are a lot more questions over the leadership of UEFA in terms of actually what they're doing, how determined they are to punish the likes of Hungary, whose fans have been repeatedly racist. We've had that whole debacle during Euro 2020 over the inability of Munich to have the rainbow flag on the outside of the stadium. And also this year, the fact is the social media companies have faced an absolute torrent of legitimate criticism from footballers, from officials, particularly in the English game, about their inability to stamp out racism. And it was, again, one of our very early pods. We did raise the prospect of a social media boycott by football, which did happen in April. It did. Just returning to UEFA, um, I think they a bit of a, a, a very much a retrograde step in that they've they've dropped their long-time association with, with FAIR, the um, European Anti-Discrimination Network, in football, which has monitored um, matches for incidents of, of discrimination of, of all different types, racism, homophobia, sexism, um, and has been a very, very sort of valuable organization in highlighting what was going on. But I think it's, it was uncomfortable for UEFA, and especially because they were getting a lot of um, kickback from particularly Eastern European countries who thought that um, they would be unfairly um, targeted. It just so happens that's where most of the incidents have, have, have been happening. Um, so um, the fact that UEFA decided not to continue with their association with FAIR, I think, is, is a, a, a real um, negative move by their part. Yeah, I mean, but does it speak to the politics involved as well? This is where, you know, the, the UEFA president, whoever the UEFA president is, is going to get votes from, from that part of the world um, since the collapse of the... Soviet Union and, and Yugoslavia, there are a lot of countries in, in, in members of UEFA who will vote. And, and again, there's so much politics involved. This is why I think we've got to fundamentally talk about the structure of these organisations, about breaking them up, perhaps. But, Rob, on, in terms of the um, social media companies, we, we spoke to um, officials from the Players Football Association in, in the UK, for example, in England, for example, and, and the Football Association as well. And they were they've been talking about the social media companies not doing enough. And some of these organizations are some of the richest companies on the planet. 
they're able to block content related to terrorism um, and, and other sort of nefarious activities. Yet racist comment is still proliferating on social media platforms. Do you think they're finally listening and you think in the year ahead we're going to see them actually take decisive action in terms of get rid of it? I meant the game changer in 2022 could be the progress of the bill in the UK Parliament, which is designed to actually tackle online hatred. And that's going to be something quite significant. Yeah, the the online harms bill, which is going through Parliament, is, uh, I mean, the government have talked about it, perhaps finding firms 10% of their global turnover. So that would be billions and millions of pounds for the likes of Facebook. Um so it's definitely something that's going to should make them sit up and take notice and do much much more than they have been doing. Um, you know, because we've just seen it, the, the proliferation of it. I mean, we saw it at Euro twenty twenty. Um, not only was the, the the sort of shambles around the organisation of the Euro twenty twenty final with thousands of people getting into Wembley without tickets and causing violent scenes there, but there were there was. A, a sort of outbreak of racism towards the three black English players who missed the penalties, and um, if, if that if that didn't highlight what the problem was, then nothing else will have done. And we were there, Tarek and myself, at Wembley to see that absolute mayhem, disorder, rampage by England fans, and something I think we're going to see a lot more as an issue going into twenty twenty two. We've seen in France, in particular, at the second half of the year of twenty twenty one pitch invasions, disorder around games and stadiums, games being called off, teams being thrown out of the um, French Cup even. In fact, this very week, we've had FC Paris and Lyon being thrown out of the French Cup for disorder. So it's probably one area in 2021 where we've not touched on yet the big transfer of the year, which was obviously Lionel Messi joining Paris Saint-Germain from Barcelona, that French football might have benefited from the world's switching off at times, despite the superstars in the league, because it's been an absolutely chaotically run league. They can't keep control of the games. The television rights has been a um, mess as well in terms of the sale of those. And actually, it's been a year to forget for French football at the same time as uh, bringing in one of the superstars in, in terms of Lionel Messi. Yeah. With, even with the Messi thing, the most exciting moment was him leaving Barcelona for PSG. And look, it's early days, but if we if you were to look back on Lionel Messi's move to PSG, it's pretty um, bit meh, really, isn't it? Not, not much has happened. I'm not sure how many games he's played in, how decisive he's been. He doesn't remind me at all of the Lionel Messi who led Barcelona to so many glorious moments. He doesn't seem particularly happy there. French football is, yeah, in a total chaotic mess. I wonder if um, he'd be up for doing it again, having had the season he's had. Whatever transpires on that front, um, you know, I'm sure all, all, all will be forgiven if he does something in the semi-final or final of the Champions League. But I actually, I think the most important thing about the, the Messi move was, was not so much what it meant for him and Paris Saint-Germain. But I think it was a real massive kick in the stomach for, for Spanish football and La Liga. And that fortunately, they've been able to do a massive TV deal in, in the USA just before he left. Um, because I think that would have been, that would have cut the value of that significantly if they, if they had known it was going to be without Lionel Messi. And one of the big moments of the year was Paris Saint-Germain's ability to reject big, offers from Real Madrid to sign Kylian Mbappe if they actually really could ever pay the 150 plus million dollars they were talking about. That was in the summer transfer window. In this very final week of 2021, we have been hearing from Kylian Mbappe because he's become the latest current player, as opposed to those former players so supportive, of FIFA's push to get biennial World Cups. This is what uh, Kylian Mbappe had to say while in Dubai at an award ceremony. The World Cup is a special thing because it's, it's something every four years. You know, if you want to keep that special and you saw like, like I talk about it, uh, about, people talk about it, about the best team, the best competition in the world. If you have it every two years, it can be start to be normal to play World Cup. And I want to say that's not normal. That's something 
amazing something maybe you play one time in your life. We play like already 60 games in the year. And you have the Hero, you have the World Cup, we have now the National League, and you have so many competition. And we are happy to play, but when it's too much, it's too much. Uh, we, have to, we have to recover, we have to stay relaxed. If, if people want to have quality in the game, if they just want to see some games to see on the TV, of course we're going to play. But if they want to see quality game, to see emotion, to see, to see this type of thing, that's make the beauty of the football too. I think we have to, to respect the, the healthy of the players. So much for Gianni Infantino saying young people around the world will be up for supporting a Bayern World Cup. I think Killian is what, 23? I mean, what's been so surprising throughout this year is just Gianni Infantino just seems to revel in being divisive. I mean, he's lost so much of the goodwill from 2016 when he was elected, finally ending the Sepp Blatter era, that he keeps on coming forward with proposals that prove so problematic and so opposed by UEFA, now indeed Common Ball as well, no, no support from CONCACAF. And as we enter 2022, he's still desperately trying to keep this bid to double the frequency of World Cups alive, despite the fact He's facing such hostility, Gian Infantino, including from one of the greats of the game now, Kylian Mbappe. But if you're Gian Infantino and you, your aim basically is to increase the um, amount of money coming into FIFA because you want to give more money to sp develop the game um, internationally, especially to the smaller associations, the smaller countries. If you want to take football to new areas, because that is effectively what you think your um, your role is, what what do you do to get that money in? Um, that's what. Well, hang on, hang on, Martin. What what money are you talking about? Why does could someone explain to me? And it hasn't been yet. Why does FIFA need more money to grow the game? Have we seen any proof of the billions that FIFA has been spending on football actually making a difference to improving football in, in the countries where he wants to grow it? And, you know, and I'll add to that, FIFA has billions that it spends on development. Why is every country getting the same amount of money? So if we're talking about these big, big plans, why aren't we talking about reform of the development system? Take the money where it needs to go. They've got enough. You don't need to tinker with anything. There's billions, more than any other sport can spend on development. They have the money. Why not spend it better? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So what's going to happen with this in 2022? When will Bayern World Cups finally be killed off? When are we going to get a compromise? Or is Jonathan Infantino going to take this battle right to the very top of the hill and uh, provoke an, a seismic moment with particularly UEFA? I can't think, I can't see him risking taking that to a vote. I really can't. Um, you know, it, it's one thing you know, putting these absolutely radical ideas out there and kind of putting threats towards people and the fact that you know that you're gonna, you you might have the votes in the bank. It's quite another thing to completely rip football apart, which is what would happen. So I can't see that happening. I, I think I think he's trying to play hardball. Um, that's why he's keeping this alive. Maybe it's all the only thing you can do. But I agree with you, Tarek. The focus shouldn't be on, on getting more money. It should be on spending it much more wisely. A year of failure for Gianni Infantino. Super League, which he was backing away behind the scenes. Buying new World Cups, which he'd hoped to get approved in December. Has this been his worst year as FIFA president so far? It's fair to say it's been a difficult year. Um, look, the one thing, one thing you can't accuse him of is being lazy and sitting on his hands, though. He's 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 given it a go. The, the thing is, words and deeds are often different. This is the this is the problem. We talk about this sort of stakeholder engagement. But if 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 your main stakeholders aren't into what you're selling, perhaps you want to come up with another option. Maybe Martin's talked about this before. We've talked about it before. Maybe the solution we're going to see by by the end of next year is this compromise of a global nations league and something else that isn't a biennial World Cup, uh, maybe um, even a tournament for those teams that don't make it to World Cup finals. As we've seen, it's always this, really the, the same bunch of countries that get to most World Cups. Maybe another tournament 
for teams that don't get there. But you know, all that all that's to for us to discuss um, next year, which I'm sure, Rob, we're sadly also going to be talking about human rights issues. Yeah, and it's been the year of human rights issues coming to the fore, particularly with Saudi Arabia and Newcastle United as they've invested in there. More questions over Qatar as well. A really transformational moment in you know, the game more widely in terms of Saudi finally getting hold of Newcastle. Yeah, I mean, that still remains a sort of uh, a sort of strange one. It is all at very, very high political levels. Um, you know, the boycott on Qatar um, being sport was lifted by the Saudis. And as a result of that, the um, being sport dropped its opposition to the Saudi takeover on piracy grounds. And lo and behold, the Premier League approved it on the understanding that uh, with written legal assurances that the Saudi state would not interfere in the running of the club, despite the fact it's 80% owned by the the sovereign wealth funder of the country. Yeah, you know, I think when you look back on, on, on that story, Martin, the idea that the Qatari government essentially gave the green light for the Saudi takeover of an English Premier League club bears some thinking. It is a strange set of affairs where, where that happens. And we're still in the dark a little bit as to what this Saudi takeover means. We had the moratorium on sponsorships. We haven't seen the influx of cash. We've got the January transfer window upon us with Newcastle at risk, serious risk of relegation to the to the championship. We'll see if the Saudi money spigot's going to open all the cash pours into the coffers. This also the year we had Formula One going to Saudi Arabia and Qatar for the first time too, producing a pretty thrilling finish that actually captivated a lot more interest around the world. Suddenly in a sport that had seemed quite routine at times, but with it, the destinations they've gone to with the human rights questions flagged up by the deposed world champion Lewis Hamilton coming to the fore. Yeah, we talked about it, didn't we, about the uh, crazily contrived end to the season, but um, I'm sure it, it fitted within what the the sports administrators wanted, um, which is obviously sticks in the, the back of the throat for some people, apart from those who, who, for some reason, don't like Lewis Hamilton. And how much delight is it, the fact we've reached this far in the year in review without really mentioning significantly the pandemic? Sony people are probably getting quite sick of it. Uh, myself and Tarek were out in Japan for the Tokyo Olympics, basically completely behind closed doors, soulless experience, and uh, probably a pretty memorable one too, the fact it's such an unusual Olympics. It's something we're going to remember for sure, but perhaps not, not for the right reasons. Yeah, they pulled it off. It felt like something that had to happen for... For, for Japan, for Tokyo, having spent that money, and for the IOC, it's reason to exist. It happened. There's going to be some athletes who are going to be very happy with their performances, with their gold medals that they've trained for, and we move on. Now, we now head to Beijing into what's probably going to be, um, well, certainly going to be even tighter bubble than we encountered in, in Tokyo for an even stranger Olympics, uh, a winter Olympics in, in Beijing. All the artificial snow, the... Um, the closed loop we're all going to be trapped in for the three weeks, again, in order for the IOC to pull a event off. And, um, yeah, I can't say it's, it's something that anyone's looking forward to, particularly something that needs to happen. And one thing I'd say in particular, the fact is the Olympics is the moment to shine for some particular sports that as we reach the end of 2021, how many of those significant figures from Tokyo have we just not heard about? And maybe... That's as much the media or they themselves, Marcel Jacobs, gone completely missing since that astonishing 100 metres title at the Olympics, which isn't good for the sport. Not good for the sport, but again, it's very strange that a man that you'd never heard of has stormed to victory in the 100 metres at the Olympics and then chosen to not run again. You know, this was the moment for him to shine and to command pretty big race fees. Uh, it'd be intriguing if we get a chance to speak to him why he's done that. He said to Italian press that he's due to return in, in February next year. And let's see if he can run at that astonishing level again. 
Yeah, the the Olympics is coming again up very shortly, uh, isn't it? We got uh, the Winter Games in Beijing, um, which again is going to be hugely affected by the COVID pandemic in terms of the people there and the organisation, all the restrictions, um, and it's actually going to, I think, going to help the Chinese authorities in a way because they'll be able to restrict any sort of big protests and demonstrations over. Um, various issues. I mean, there's the uh, he, any, the human rights um, protests that's been going on in Hong Kong. We've got the, the treatment of the, the Uyghur Muslims and, of course, the, the tennis player Peng Shuai. And that's been really one of the significant moments of 2021, the intervention of the WTA in terms of the leadership of the women's tour, really speaking out against her treatment and her fate and suspending tournaments in China and that's still the situation as we enter the new year that there'll be no women's tennis tournaments taking place in China in contrast to some other aspects of sport which have not stood up really as much as the WTA has and also of course coming up next year quite a few big events next uh, across July and August we've got the World Athletic Championships the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham we've got the Women's Euros taking place in England as well so quite a packed sport year to come yeah, I mean, it'll be uh, a very, hopefully for, for the women's Euros, it'll be a, a potentially a very lucrative and successful tournament if they can um, get the sort of crowds that they had for the men's Euros. And I mean, the, the way things are looking with the pandemic, I think there's a very good chance that that will happen. Well, one thing I never imagined in this year when we started recording in January is we would record 49 episodes by the end of the year between us. That is many, many hours spent amongst us and many hours of people thankfully listening to us around the world. Really enjoyed it, guys. Um, looking forward to getting our half century, which is uh, perhaps more than most of the English cricketers have done in Australia. Um, looking forward to getting to that landmark. All the best to you and looking forward to another action-packed year yeah any more action-packed than this is we're going to be in trouble i'll tell you that <laughs> it keeps us busy doesn't it? it keeps the listeners up they want to have something to listen to yeah we can't you can't complain no well uh, happy new year happy new year to all of our listeners too from myself rob harris and martin ziegler and Tarek panja We're always grateful if you can hit subscribe so we land in your feeds whenever we do drop an episode. And also you can follow us on social media at Sport A Lot on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But for now, at the end of 2021, a happy new year and thank you for listening. Listener.